0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with two RFF fellows, Brian Prest and Kevin Rennert. Brian and Kevin, along with a large team of collaborators, recently released a paper in the journal Nature that provides a new estimate of the social cost of carbon. In today's episode, I'll ask them to describe what's new about their estimate how it differs from previous numbers, and what it implies for policymaking. We'll also talk about the important uncertainties that surround their estimate, as well as the arguments that some critics make that we should put less focus on using the social cost of carbon. Stay with us. All right, Kevin Renner and Brian Prest from Resources for the Future, my colleagues, my friends, welcome back to Resources Radio.
1: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Yeah. Thank you for having us. So Brian and Kevin, because you've both been on the show before, we're not going to ask you how you got interested in energy and environmental topics, but we are going to ask you um, because the topic that we're going to talk about today, the social cost of carbon and your updates to the social cost of carbon, they've been done with a pretty uh, substantial team of folks. and, And I know that you want to acknowledge their contributions at the outset. So can you tell us who you worked with on this project?
1: Absolutely. So uh, it has been a tremendous team of folks, and it's a uh, been a collaboration primarily between the University of California, Berkeley, and RFF. Um, and the core team out at UC Berkeley has been David Antoff and his lab uh, with Lisa Reynolds and also Cora Kingdon. Um, and then here at RFF, it's been uh, been Brian, myself, Jordan Wingenroth, um, Roger Cook, Richard Newell, Billy Peiser, um, and also Frank Erickson at Princeton has been a really a part of that core team too. And on the actual paper that we're kind of talking about the results from today, there are even more um, co-authors because we've been collaborating with, with you know, a, a huge number of institutions um, to, to come up with this update.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to go into the background of the project here in much detail, but I'm aware of, uh, enough of it to know that it's been a multi-year, multi-institution, uh, really pretty Herculean effort to come up with this new estimate of the social cost of carbon that we're going to talk about today. So before we get into it and tell everybody what the number is, because I know everybody wants to know what is the number, let's just define what the social cost of carbon or the SCC is. Most of our listeners probably know, but for those of us who could use a refresher, can you define the term for us and then tell us how the SCC is used in policymaking in the United States and elsewhere?
1: Sure. And, and this is Kevin. So the social cost of carbon is an economic measure of the marginal damage from an additional ton of greenhouse gas emissions. And to unpack that a little bit, basically it says, if you have a baseline of, of greenhouse gas emissions and you emit an additional ton of greenhouse gas emissions, what is the effective dollar cost um, to society, the social cost from the addition of that uh, you know, ton of greenhouse gas emissions? Or you can flip that around and say, "What is the dollar benefit of not emitting that ton of greenhouse gas emissions?" Uh, so that's that's what the the social cost of carbon, or SCC, as we'll, we'll refer to it, uh, you know, in this podcast, um, you know, will, will actually tell you. And it's an important number and an important concept because um, in policy making oftentimes policymakers want to you know evaluate kind of trade-offs between the decisions that are making and so they might say I'm thinking about uh, imposing a regulation for example and that regulation is going to have some costs associated with it in terms of potentially changing the um, you know equipments that uh, you know someone that's polluting might need to use to control that pollution or you know the standard I'm going to set for energy efficiency for a particular line of products and so when they are setting those standards and they want to take in, They're thinking about the cost they also want to know what the benefits might be the social cost of carbon allows them to quantify the emissions that would be reduced by taking that action and seeing what the dollar value is um, you know as a result of that the dollar benefit to society and then comparing those with the cost so they have some more information into that process so it gets used by the federal government in the United States in regulatory actions, in efficiency standards, as I mentioned. But it also gets used at the state level. Um, so there are states that uh, that think about it in terms of um, you know having their utilities um, that are producing electricity think about the social cost of carbon as they are planning additional um, kind of electric power coming onto the grid. So they are evaluating whether it should be natural gas or renewables, things like that. There are some that that actually pay their utilities based on the value of the um, of the social cost of carbon for zero emission generation um and and other things of that nature
0: that's great super helpful background so um we're gonna again get to the number in just a second but to produce an estimate of the social cost of carbon um there are uh, several really important analytical steps that you have to take uh, to kind of get there so so what are those key steps that you and the team have taken
1: yeah that's exactly right so uh, so to unpack the number you have to realize that it's a very rich kind of intellectual subject because it combines all these different steps where if you want to know what the cost of society is you need to sort of know where society is heading you need very long-run projections of socioeconomics, what the emissions are going to be what the um, what the you know uh, the actual uh, income is going to be what the population is going to be for example you also need to have information about what the climate system is going to do so you're gonna to have to have a climate model involved then you need to look at the, um, you know, the changes in the climate and be able to translate those into economic um, impacts. Um, so you need some information from uh, from research studies that will translate them into economic damages. And finally, these damages are going to persist for a long time because, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. And so you want to sum up those damages and discount them back uh, into kind of a net present value um, term. So all of those different pieces um, are required to estimate the social cost of carbon. There was a set of recommendations from the National Academy of Sciences that looked at uh, the kind of models that were out there for estimating the SCC um, back in 2017 and found that all of them needed sort of substantial updates um, in across all of these different four pieces that I was talking about. And so our team embarked on uh, research and pulling in research from the literature uh, to to improve all these different pieces. The first piece was obviously these long-run projections of socioeconomics. We had an entire research project working with some of the top um, you know, um, demographers and, uh, and economic growth um, projection um, economists to, um, to look at what's happening with, with future economic growth and also with, with population and also do the same with, uh, with future projections of emissions. Um, we brought in a, a state of the science uh, climate model. Um, we looked to the state of the science for, uh, from the literature, from economic impacts. Um, and also Brian uh, and Richard Newell and Billy Peiser came up with a really, um, you know, novel method for, uh, for um, determining the economic discounting piece as well.
0: Fantastic. And as listeners will know, we could almost certainly spend entire podcast episodes talking about any one of those components, Um, but uh, we're going to kind of zip through them as Kevin just did so expertly now and move on to the big drum roll. So drum roll in your head. Uh, What uh, results do you come to after you take all these steps? What is your estimate for the SCC and how does it compare to some of the other estimates that folks listening may have heard of?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is Brian. Uh, I could take that one. Uh, so here's the, the big reveal is uh, our estimate for the SEC. And um, after putting together all the pieces that Kevin just alluded to now, the socioeconomics, the emissions, the climate modeling, the temperature, uh, the uh, projections, uh, the climate impact studies and the discounting, uh, we ultimately come to an estimate for the SCC of about $185 per ton of carbon dioxide. So uh, how does that compare to the other estimates out there? Well, uh natural benchmark uh, estimate is the uh, existing interim estimate uh, used by the federal government, which amounts to $51 per, per ton of, of CO2. Now, uh, in the paper, we uh, also do a kind of a stepwise comparison where we look at the uh, estimate from The uh, Bill Nordhaus' DICE model, uh, which came out to a number that's very similar to that $51 federal estimate. Their number was about uh, $44. And then we incrementally add different pieces of our update to show how how the different pieces uh, that Kevin alluded to uh, uh, drives that change from $44 to $185, which is our estimate. Uh, and uh, the first step is where we uh, implement all of the socioeconomic uh, uncertainty the uh, emissions the the modern uh, climate model that, that Kevin mentioned um but we uh, we keep the the, the DICE models uh, damage function uh, is, uh, which is a widely used and uh, uh, understood uh, function for estimating the how temperature affects uh, gdp losses and that uh, so all of those pieces um increases the scc by about a third uh, and then we uh, next uh, update the those damage functions, the, the DICE simple damage function, to our sector-specific damage functions where we account for impacts on four uh, major sectors, uh, heat-related mortality, uh, agriculture, uh, energy expenditures uh, from heating and cooling buildings, uh, and coastal impacts from sea level rise. And when we do that, that increases the SEC by about another third. And then the, the last piece is where we uh, update the all-important discount rate. It's, you know, the SEC is well-known to be uh, sensitive to the discount rate because of these long-lived impacts of greenhouse gas emissions that Kevin alluded to. And so what we do there is we update the, the discount rate from the historically used 3% uh to uh 2%, which is more reflective of recent trends in uh market interest rates that have been declining for decades now. And when we update that, we uh uh the SEC uh goes from about uh eighty dollars at a three percent discount rate to $185 at a two percent uh, near-term discount rate. And so that uh that last piece uh, approximately doubles uh, the SEC.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. It's fascinating that um, I mean, not surprising probably to our listeners, but uh, it's just you know always so interesting to to understand how important that discount rate is to the ultimate number. Because it is so important, I think it's probably worth taking a moment, Brian, for you to just explain to our listeners like what is the discount rate, why is it used in the social cost of carbon, and how does such a you know what appears to be a small tweak in the discount rate from 3 to 2% lead us to such a substantial uh, change in the ultimate number?
2: Sure, happy to. Um, so the discount rate uh, uh, involves uh, taking impacts that might be felt in the future, you know, say 10, 20, or 100 or more years down the line, uh, and converting it into a, a value in present value, it, or essentially today's equivalent value. How much are we willing to pay today to mitigate uh, a dollar or more impacts uh, say fifty years from now uh and this is important because uh for there are many reasons that uh you know people and society just values having you know benefits that happen earlier rather than later uh and so the uh th- that sensitivity the three the big change when you go from three percent to two percent just owes to kind of the power of of compounding um a uh you know a small change in interest rate extended. You know, over a hundred years can lead to uh, a very large change in the present value of those impacts.
0: Yeah, and your projection go through the year twenty three hundred. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So when you go out that far, I mean, it's just yeah. There's there's a there's a huge effect. And can you actually dig a little bit deeper, but just like one level deeper? Like, why is it that you and you know the other folks on the team have decided that two percent is kind of the right number in this context?
2: Sure. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 2% has been kind of a a focal point for uh, many economists in recent years uh, for an updated discount rate. Uh, And the reason is actually pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, So during the uh, Bush administration back in 2003, um, the Office of Management and Budget, uh, or OMB, um, issued some guidance for how federal analysts should do cost-benefit analysis. Uh, So one piece of that was what discount rates to use. Uh, and the they landed on a three percent discount rate for discounting what are called consumption impacts, such as climate impacts, and that was based on uh, essentially what a thirty uh, year look back, where they looked back over the previous thirty years on average, what were the you know real rates of return on government debt, and that number came to uh, about three percent, and so they recommended three percent. Of course, things have changed quite a bit. Interest rates have come down quite a bit over the past 20 years. And so if you basically do that same analysis that was done in 2003, that 30-year look back, but not looking back from 2003, but looking back from today, that same calculation gets you about a 2% discount rate. So it's really the same logic underlying a longstanding guidance for discounting in cost-benefit analysis. That's super interesting. Um,
0: great Brian, thank you so much so Kevin, I'd like to turn to you and ask this next question, which is maybe a dumb question but um you know the, the simple question is what is this higher SEC, you know more than three times higher the current number being used by the EPA? What does that mean for climate policy in the u
1: s Sure, and I should make a very clear distinction here that uh, that we are putting out this number as a result of our our own independent research. What the federal government ends up deciding to do is is still very much to be determined um, and we very much were Coming up with our science our, in our updates and the process and transparency that we pursued it with in the hopes that it will facilitate the government update. Um, but again, the, the decision on what they will use is, is of course, you know, up to the, the federal government in the end. Um, so were the you know were these numbers to get uh, pulled in by the federal governments and and the SEC um, you know to be increased substantially, um, the the answer to your question is just that it's uh, it motivates more stringent um, uh, policies when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and that's because as the um, different regulatory agencies and I mentioned energy efficiency standards and other ways it can get used, as they um, think about the the trade-offs um, of of different actions that uh, that could be taken. um, more stringent actions will suddenly be uh, will pass a benefit cost test that might not have passed um, you know with with a lower number now that's not to say in any way that's uh that's this uh, higher number necessarily means that the federal government for example will take actions that it wouldn't have taken otherwise because in many cases um the benefit cost test is just one component of information that they they look at um and just knowing that something passes doesn't mean that uh that's you know if it were to be $185 for the source cause of carbon that that actually ends up getting passed on to consumers it's really just a piece of information that uh, that they use to decide about uh, uh you know the the level of action that's that is taken so there's, there's the change in the value that is important, but another important, um, you know, aspect of, of the work that we've done is its transparency and the fact that it has all gone through peer review, um, which, um, the paper that we we're putting out itself was peer reviewed and all of the components that, uh, that we built the model that we're, we're talking about the results from today were also already independently, um, scientifically reviewed and so as as the federal government looks to pull in additional information um that's you know that scrutiny um is going to make it more likely that uh, in addition to the scrutiny that the federal government would put their updated numbers through um it will be legally defensible as well because um in in addition to wanting to have your um you know you basically want to be sure that your regulations themselves are based on as solid and uh, scientifically credible evidence as possible to make sure that they are not vulnerable to legal challenge as well right and legal challenge
0: that will certainly come you know once EPA updates its number i mean it's already in it being litigated right now right kevin exactly that's right yeah so so we've talked about the central number, that $185 value that the team has come up with. We haven't talked yet much about the uncertainties around that number, and the uncertainties are substantial. Uh, there's a 5% to 95% confidence interval around that $185 value that is as low as $44 and is as high as $400. So uh, can you all talk a little bit about why that range is so large? And if you can, what some of the biggest contributors to that wide range
2: might be? Sure, uh this is Brian. I can I can take that one. Uh so as Kevin mentioned, a key contribution of our work here is that we actually quantitatively characterize uncertainties in all of the key pieces here, the socioeconomics, population and GDP projections, emissions projections, uncertainties in the in how the climate system responds to to a pulse of emissions. And uncertainties on how you know, rising temperatures and sea levels affect society. And then also uncertainty and, and uh, the proper discount rate uh, out into the future. And so we've accounted for all of, of those key things, which has proven to be pretty important. Um, in terms of a, a quantitative disaggregation or you know um, untangling of all of the different contributions of each of these un- uh, uncertain inputs we actually haven't done a, a formal uh analysis of that yet uh, we would like to and plan to do so uh, in future work uh, one thing that i i can say is that a key uncertainty is exactly the socioeconomics the you know understanding you know what is the the uh, range of potential future populations that there might be affected by climate uh, and what the size of the economy that might be uh, Uh, vulnerable to climate impacts would be, and then finally, you know, what is a likely range of potential future emissions trajectories into the future? Uh, These are key uh, uncertainties, uh, and we plan to do a more quantitative disaggregation of each one's contribution uh, in the future.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it'll be fascinating to see that future work. I'm wondering Brian if you can just for the sake of our listeners who haven't worked with, you know, large data sets and projecting into the future and uncertainty, can you maybe like pick a random example from the work and give us a sense of how wide the range of uncertainty is from whatever element of the work, uh, you know, might be a good example for listeners to just kind of get their head around this a little more?
2: Uh sure, absolutely. So, uh one uh big uncertainty is as i already mentioned you know how big the economy is just going to be uh, uh 100 200 or even you know 300 uh years from now um so you know uh we've drawn on recent econometric work to understand you know what is the volatility and the, the range of uncertainty for uh, future economic growth rates uh and uh, as well as done our own work to uh, uh subject that to um expert elicitation uh and uh, what you're looking at there is if you look at kind of very long projections of the rate of economic growth uh you know could be you know, uh as you know low as uh, you know less than one percent uh by twenty three hundred or it could be more than three percent and that those differences may sound small, but you know as I mentioned earlier the the power of of compounding means small changes in uh growth rates can have some, uh, big changes in uh in outcomes and the size of the economy and hence you know, uh the degree of vulnerability to a changing climate
0: yeah that's a great great answer and and folks can i think wrap their heads around that economic growth uh, uncertainty because you know we just kind of live with it every day right and we hear about uh we hear about it on the news almost every night so um, one uh, just a couple more questions now before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is to ask you to talk a little bit more about uncertainty and particularly uh, what Donald Rumsfeld would call the known unknowns. So potential climate impacts that you know, we have confidence that they're out there, uh, that they could happen, but that you maybe uh, were not able to quantify in your calculations. And uh, so I'm just curious about, you know, what some of those really big ticket items might be, and how significant you think their effects could be if they uh, were to be incorporated into the SEC in the future.
2: Sure. Yeah. So in uh, our work, as I mentioned, we have um, four major sectors accounted for in a you know, clear dollar valued monetized impact. And those are heat related mortality, agriculture, energy expenditures for heating and cooling, uh, and coastal impacts from sea level rise. Uh, But there are lots of impacts from climate change that, you know, aren't on that list. And so uh, we hope to include those in the future. Uh, In fact, the model modeling platform that we have uh, developed for this purpose uh, is designed to easily facilitate the addition of new sectors and new impacts over time. Uh, So, I'll just focus on two examples of things that we hope to include in the future. Uh, So, one missing piece is uh, the impact of uh, climate change on uh, global biodiversity loss. So, there is a a literature on the impact of rising temperatures on species loss, but putting a dollar value on that is not a simple or straightforward task. And so, we actually have ongoing work uh, where we plan to actually put that dollar value on uh, the impact on biodiversity loss in, in dollar terms. Um, And uh, I'm not going to speculate on what the dollar value uh, is yet, uh, but uh, it could be a non-trivial addition to uh, the impacts that we have modeled. Uh, Another piece that we haven't monetized yet is uh, ocean acidification. Uh, So rising CO2 levels of the atmosphere uh, uh, essentially get absorbed by the ocean and this uh, raises the acidity of the ocean or lowers the, the pH. Uh, and that has many different effects, including on degradation of corals, uh, as well as impacts on uh, uh, shellfish, which has also has economic consequences for fisheries. Uh, so our model actually has a component where we quantify the impact of rising uh, CO2 levels on ocean acidity, uh, and so we can report, you know, the change in pH levels of the ocean. Uh, but we don't yet have a way to translate that into dollar terms, and that would be uh, a great place for uh, additional work to continue to contribute to our estimates. And then, and then there are just, there's just tons of other options out there. There's uh, impacts on migration, conflict, labor productivity, and so on. All these things are not included in our estimate, uh, but could be uh, with additional work in the future.
0: Right. So for for our research audience that's listening out there, still lots of work to do and lots of ways to contribute to this number. And certainly, you know, we wouldn't or I wouldn't think of this SEC as like the final SEC, right? But it's a but it's a substantial update to what we have in the SEC. Um, Brian and Kevin, you've both mentioned the uh, sort of open source transparency and and the platform that you all have developed to share the information and the results that you've come up with during this work. Can you point our listeners to where they can go online to find that information, access it, look at the data, you know, analyze the models, all that stuff?
1: Sure, if you go to rff.org/scc, uh, you'll find basically all of the information that uh, that RFF has on the social cost of carbon aggregated in one place, and there are some pretty clear links there um, to uh to the the Mimi platform, uh which is at uh, mimiframework.org, um as well as um you know out to the, to David Antoff's lab as well. Great. And I forget does Mimi
0: stand for something or is it just like a cute name?
1: it's just a cute name there's a long standing joke about it but uh <laughs> okay. can't go into it here
0: okay cool um great well just one more question guys uh, before we go to our top of the stack which is a question that i'm sure some of our listeners are thinking about which is that you know there are some who have criticized uh, the entire approach that we're talking about today that, that are critical of using an SEC approach. And and folks will argue instead that the best way to think about dealing with climate change is not to try to balance benefits and costs, but instead to pick a clear temperature target, maybe 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees by 2100, and then kind of throw everything we need to throw uh, at the problem to try to limit global warming to that temperature target. Can you talk a little bit about the relative merits of that approach or the relative merits of the two different approaches and and how you all as researchers think about them?
1: So that's a great question that comes up a lot in discussions about the social cost of carbon. I'll go back to the the definition again. The social cost of carbon is the future damages from an incremental increase in carbon dioxide emissions in a year or really the, the avoided damages from a decrease in those emissions. So what it's telling you is the incremental or additional benefit from abatement. Now, in the benefit-cost framework, which is what is used by the federal government, the idea is that you're quantifying the incremental benefits of abatement that are associated with a policy action, and you're comparing them to the incremental costs of that action for abatement. So the social cost of carbon is a really consistent metric for comparing the benefits to the costs. Now, this is different from the other approach that you're asking about, in which you're assessing the effective carbon price from a policy that's specifying an environmental target. could be emissions or temperature. Now, the carbon price that's associated with a policy like that, um, specifying an environmental target, provides a measure of the marginal cost of abatement, not the damages. So that's really useful in evaluating policy cost effectiveness, but it's not an alternative way to value the damages from carbon dioxide emissions. So both of these approaches give you different information, and both of them are useful. The SEC, though, is is the one that's consistent with the framework of analysis that the U.S. government actually uses in its regulatory analysis, and so it's appropriate to think about it in that, that framework.
0: All right. Well, thanks to both of you so much for coming on the show today and helping us understand this update to the social cost of carbon. As we often do in our episodes, we've really only scratched the surface here. So we would encourage folks to read the paper and check out the RFF event. Um, which uh, we'll have links to, of course, in the show notes. So now before we close out, uh, let's ask you, Brian and Kevin, the same question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something to our listeners that's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. So let's start with uh, Kevin. Kevin, what's at the top of your stack?
1: Uh, you know, I'm going to duck this question because I've been on vacation for the last two weeks and what I've been reading has been a romance novel that was written by a friend of mine from, from high school. So I'm not going to talk about that here on the podcast.
0: <laughs> yes, I've heard it was a little steamy. So maybe it, it was best for another conversation. Okay. Um, so, uh, Kevin pleads a fifth. Brian, what's at the top of your stack?
2: Sure. So I just got reading a great book called The Rule of Five by Richard Lazarus. And this book is the story of Massachusetts versus EPA, which was a landmark 2007 uh, Supreme Court ruling that ultimately led to uh, what's called the endangerment finding at EPA, where EPA determined uh, that uh, CO2 is an air pollutant, which uh, triggered a bunch of authorities for the EPA to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions from uh, cars and power plants and so on and so forth. Uh, anyway, uh, so this book is, it's a, you know, it's in some sense a history book, nonfiction, but it's uh, written like a legal thriller and it's very uh, gripping and exciting and interesting. Um, and, uh, it tells the story starting from a petition to EPA uh, in the early 2000s, um, up through the, big Supreme Court case. Uh, And it has a lot of interesting uh, legal history and also just kind of interesting background about the Supreme Court. Uh, And all of this is the history that uh, set us up to where uh, we are today with uh, uh, EPA uh, uh, pursuing regulations on greenhouse gas emissions from various sectors.
0: Wow, that's fast. So
2: it's like a thriller. So it's like Anthony Kennedy getting, you know, in a car chase or something. <laughs> uh, you know, you joke, but uh, but Kennedy uh, is uh, a major. It does play a major role uh, in this, um, and uh, it sometimes wasn't clear which way he was going to go. And <laughs> and uh, understanding the the history is just uh, uh, it was a, it makes for a very interesting story.
0: Yeah. how it's fascinating. Great. Well, thank you, Brian. And thank you uh, to both of you, uh, Kevin Renner and Brian Prest from RFF for coming on the show and helping us understand your and your team's update to the social cost of carbon. Really fascinating work. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Daniel. Yeah, it was great to be here. You've been listening to
0: Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.